Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm very pleased to begin today by thanking David A., who recently made a PayPal donation directly to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And I would also like to thank my two new supporters on Patreon, and they are Stan B. and Jonathan P., which now brings me up to 88 patrons whose names will be in the front of my next book as the supporters who are funding my work. And uh, to all of the supporters of the salon and of my writing projects, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now today we're going to begin listening to a part of Terence McKenna's Scholar-in-Residence gig at Esalen Institute early in 1996. And as far as I've been able to determine, this series of talks hasn't appeared on the net so far. The set of tapes that I'm digitizing are labeled Unedited Participant Copy, and they were sent to me by Ian Wynn, whose book you'll be hearing about in an upcoming podcast. But Ian was a young man in a traveling mode when this workshop took place, and he was one of the participants for that weekend. From what I gather, uh, after previewing this recording, it was a very small group, and uh, I think Ian was on a work-study program at Esalen at the time, so when he left, they gave him a copy of this unedited set of tapes. Now, we've all listened to a lot of Terence's talks, and if you're like me, you still enjoy hearing him tell some of his stories in a new way. So in just a moment, you're going to hear Terence take off on his end of the millennium rap. Well, he takes off actually quite early in this talk on that. But so that you don't think he just took off there without any preface, I should let you know that I cut out about 40 minutes in the beginning of this tape where they were going around the room and introducing themselves. And as they did so, Terence would comment on some of the things that they said. In particular, there were quite a few people there who were really into the time wave and the potential for a 2012 event. It isn't that these early exchanges between Terence and those attending his workshop weren't interesting, it's just that uh, some of what was said was rather personal and it just didn't seem right to make these remarks public without their okay. Anyway, uh, keep in mind that this workshop was held in March of 1996. So there still was enough time between then and December of 2012 for there to be the possibility that Terence's prediction about 2012 could come true. Of course, uh, we now know that this was a non-event, but don't let that give you a jaded opinion of the discussion of those times. In fact, you can almost take some of what Terence predicts is going to happen in 2012 and wonder if perhaps he was just a decade or so off with the date that he picked. But, you know... I've been hearing predictions about the end times all of my life. Even though I'm now closer to my own end time than to my beginning time, not for a moment do I think that our species is even within a thousand years of fading out. Of course, <laughs> I have no idea of what human life will be like in a thousand years, but uh, I have a hunch that those who are still here will most likely be talking about end times just like we do today. At least some of them will be. Anyway, that's uh, probably something worth thinking about if you get a spare moment. But enough of my rambling. Let's join Terence McKenna on a March day in 1996 as he begins a weekend workshop at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. 
If you haven't been to Esalen before, it's an extraordinary place with an extraordinary history, an extraordinary morphogenetic field. Uh, the baths are open 24 hours a day. Uh, the massage staff is uh, the best in the world. And to uh, take advantage of all of these things, uh, know that you can cross a small bridge at the other side of the garden and there's a whole other section of Esalen, which is very beautiful and nicely landscaped. And that's the way to get down to the sea in front of that building, which is obviously and is called the big house. There's a system of stairways which take you down to the beach. So um, that's highly recommended. Okay, I think that's um, the basic thing. There's uh, always toast and jam and usually coffee and stuff like that uh, in the dining room whenever it's open. So if you miss a meal or if you get the munchies, that's available. Um, Oh, this one I'm uh, pretty much, I actually, I'm up to speed on this one. This is, Kathleen's helping me out because usually I don't know what I'm teaching. And th if there's no catalog in the room, then we're sort of hung out to dry. But th this one I'm highly motivated. And so I've been looking forward to it, uh, the briefing for Descent into Novelty. What has made you highly motivated? Well, because the plunge, there's a plunge into novelty happening. So the idea, or, or I'm claiming there is. So then we actually have something to look at and measure all this baffle garb against rather than the usual vapor, you know. This is part of my life that I enjoy most, and it's hard to carry the public into it because it's so arcane. But this is really where the thrills lie for me, um, which I guess leads me into some of what I want to say this evening. Let me lay out for you how I see this briefing for Descent into Novelty and what that really means, because it's deliberately ambiguous because it refers to several things simultaneously. Any encounter with me that involves a discussion of psychedelics is in and of itself a briefing for a descent into novelty. That's what psychedelics are. The ordinary structures and momentum and logic of the world is replaced by a very novel uh, redaction of those things. So that's one level of the meaning of the briefing for a descent into novelty. Uh, another level of meaning is we are plunging without the aid of my theory toward the end of the millennium. And this will be used as a benchmark and, a, and an enormous kind of goad to certain agendas to complete themselves or launch themselves. And I'm sure as we approach the millennium, you can feel the built-in apocalyptic expectations of Judeo-Christian culture just swelling to burst at the seams. Well, I, I think anybody who didn't have some kind of fairly strong model of what is going on would be scared to death. 
I mean, there is a sense of everything simply flying apart. I mean, we don't know what it will be. World economic crash, Ebola outbreak, asteroid strike, climate change. But it just begins to multiply to the point where you get the feeling we may not know what's coming, but God, something must be coming. So a thousand years is reaching its culmination, and inevitably this civilization will be divided at this millennium. There will be the first millennium of industrial, post-medieval, so forth and so on, and, this, and then whatever comes after. And then a, a third sense, in which this is a briefing for a descent into novelty, and this requires a little backgrounding for those of you who aren't familiar with the time wave theory, which has now been referred to repeatedly. This is an idea, a mathematical formalism, which I generated with the help of the Logos, that addresses the concept that of the Tao, a mysterious force which ebbs and flows through all things, building structure up and tearing it down according to mysterious laws of its own, takes that notion of Tao and attempts to demystify it in the sense of if Tao is a force which tears things down and builds things up, up and down can be directions on a Cartesian axis. So why not portray the Tao as the ebb and flow of a quality, a numerically quantifiable quality? Well, to cut to the chase, I've done this, and it replaces the Newtonian uh, assumption that time is a perfectly smooth Aristotelian surface with a much more complicated version of what time is. Time is a kind of landscape or a kind of topological manifold or surface over which events flow but subject to the contours of that surface so that in the same way river a river running through rocky gorges attains great speed and power, but when it flows out onto the flatlands, it loses that momentum, it spreads out, it meanders. Time is a similar kind of phenomenon. There are periods of great placitude and, uh, and stability and continuity most of time has been like that. Change in most of time is something that stretches out over millions and millions of years. I'm speaking now, first of all, of astrophysical changes, uh, planetological evolution, even biological evolution, which is orders of magnitude more rapid than, than geology is nevertheless something which moves in a very stately fashion. Major mutations require hundreds of thousands, millions of years in some cases, to establish themselves. So most of time exhibits a fairly uniform placidity on the local scale, if you see what I mean. But for the past 25,000 years, or 50,000, or million, depending on your sensitivity to turbulence, something else has been happening. 
acceleration, connectivity, uh, a complexification and densification of the matrix. And we are products of this. But it hasn't, it isn't a, it isn't a smooth descent or ascent toward greater complexity. It's a punctuated movement toward complexity or novelty, as I call it. There are steps back. There are setbacks. Sometimes they last millions of years. Sometimes they last minutes. Uh, and this leads me then, that's enough background. Uh, so one reason this is called a descent into, briefing for a descent into novelty, is because according to this theory, we are in a descent into novelty, a very dramatic uh, descent began on the 25th of February, just a week ago. In the 20th century, there have only been two other periods that the theory defines as this novel. The first one is the period from October 1928 to October 1929, and the second one is from December 1940 to December of 1941. Now, interestingly, both of those purely formal mathematical predictions nail major upheavals of novelty in the 20th century. The first, the collapse of the world economy, culminating in the American stock crash of October 29. The second, World War II, raging furiously all through 1940 and then ending in December 41 by the US being dragged in with the Japanese attack. So uh, the novelty theory is in the midst, as we speak, of a test. Has, is the novelty market soaring? Is novelty pouring into the system at a very fast rate? Now, some people thought that, you know, the dead would rise on the 25th of February. That isn't how it works. Throughout the past couple of years, and I'm sure you are aware of it, we have been in a recidivist period in American politics and life, meaning uh, a, a conservative era. Uh, and that has gotten more and more constipated and more and more self-congratulatory and more and more uh, certain of itself, and hence odious. And I believe we've crossed over the cusp and now that all is in a state of complete chaos and collapse. Uh, there are uh, many, many things on the agenda for the next few months that could usher in enormous novelty, although novelty usually arrives in the form of the unexpected. In other words, the source of the novelty might be a return of communism to power in Russia, or it might be, um, uh, what else is scheduled? An American election is scheduled. An Israeli election is scheduled. Uh, it could be uh, that the Chinese will attempt to grab Taiwan and create World War III. Misjudgment could lead that direction. But it could be positive. Novelty has no morality. An AIDS cure, uh, um, 
what else can I think of along those? Well, some enormous technological breakthrough, you know, star flight or, or cold fusion or something like that. I mean, these things lurk as possibilities, leaning into the continuum of space-time, always willing to be sucked into actualization if you can get the mojo right. So part of the briefing of a descent into novelty here is to ask and discuss the question, does it feel like we've come over a cusp? Does it feel like we're uh, in a situation of increasing novelty day by day by day? This will last on into early June. And then if not, if we all get together in midsummer and agree it was kind of a dud, didn't really live up to expectations, well, then that's real data for looking at the time wave. I, my People are confused sometimes by exactly who and what I am. And that's because in my personality, which is a humbler word than method, two things are united which are usually not found co-present. My uh, techniques are all shamanic and involve perturbing the senses and dissolving ordinary states of mind through psychedelics. So my techniques are shamanic, but my, uh, my, uh, my uh, what would I call it? I guess method, not techniques, but method is rational and analytical. So I use shamanic techniques to go into shamanic places and then attempt to study them scientifically using reason. Say, what is this? How does it work? What is it made of? What, how do its parts relate to each other? And what is its inner dynamic? And I, I, this apparently, though it seems fairly obvious to me, is a fairly radical uh, union of techniques. Scientists don't explore psychedelics because somehow the, the scientific mind must not be besmirched by contact and contamination with the thing studied. But how the hell can you study psychedelics without taking them? <coughs> Rats are not very satisfying and graduate students still less so. So uh, eventually, you know, you're going to have to get your feet wet. Well, then they say, well, but that destroys your scientific objectivity. Well, not if it's the only, meth the only path to contacting the phenomenon that you're attempting to study. So that has worked for me. I am not part of the New Age in my own mind. To me, the New Age is typified by an incredible credulity and an utter immunity to cognitive dissonance. I mean, you know, you can believe that the world is ruled from the Pleiades and you can believe that L. Ron Hubbard is God. There seems to be no end to the number of contradictions that the New Age can simultaneously uh, entertain. Uh, but what I have done is I probe weirdness. I am, but rationally. Most people who are attracted to weirdness want to convert and believe it and take it in and exalt it. I don't. 
I, I don't want to believe anything. I hate ideology, all ideology. That's what I, why I'm so casual about the possible crushing of my own, because ideologies are a lesser, um, a, a lesser resolution of our dilemma than we are capable of. The higher resolution lies in real feeling and real community uh, and affection. Uh, ideology has poisoned the last thousand years. All of these ideologies have ultimately done more good and done more bad than good. Marxism, Christianity, even, you know, at the risk of setting off a riot, Freudianism, on and on and on. Uh, the, the correct method, I think, is simply the phenomenological approach. Catalog data, seek patterns, draw conclusions, test them back against the original data. Now, most people who advocate that kind of an approach somehow come down it brings them down. They say, well, this method then shows you that uh, being is only this, and thought is only that, and love is merely this, and so forth. In other words, it's a, it, it reduces everything. It insults everything. Uh, I haven't found that to be the case. I've found real weirdness. The world is strange. Very, very, very strange. Not only, I mean, far stranger than I suppose, and orders of magnitude more strange than these cheerful workbench scientists and keepers of the faith of our culture, suppose. There are doorways, there are edges, there are passageways, but for every real one, there are 10,000 dead ends, cul-de-sacs, and cheap scams of one sort. So to go out as an ingenue into the world seeking to uh, invest your belief in something, you will be instantly sucked into some screwy thing and your life force pulled from you and you will be used and abused as ingenues and naives always are. A much better uh, approach is, you know, be tough. The truth does not require your participation in order to exist. S bullshit does. Uh, but the truth is fine, thank you, whether you believe in it or not. Uh, so what is, what is gained by the truth if you believe in it? Nothing, I maintain. And, and you are diminished. You are diminished because by believing in something, you have precluded your freedom to believe in its opposite. You gave away the most precious existential currency in the universe. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it's very good to be tough, to ask the hard questions, uh, and, but to, to go a long way down the path with these claimants to secret knowledge, uh, insight, lineage, but ultimately, you know, the hard questions have to be asked. And this is not a path toward dispelling the mystery from the universe. This is the way to get to the real gold in a hurry, not become uh, 
glamorized or subverted by the dross of, uh, of the world. <laughs> well, maybe that's enough for this evening. We will go over all of these things at the level of intensity that you are interested in. It's fine to get down to the how much, how and when questions about the compounds and the plants. That is technique, and that's important because it's fine to sit here talking about the psychedelic experience. This bears no resemblance to the psychedelic experience in any form whatsoever. Uh, so it's very important that you leave here empowered, uh, em empowered to make your way into these places uh, with confidence. And then the other thing to pay attention to is inevitably the way our ass-backward society works is uh, it creates cults of personality and, and uh, renaissance stabilized points of focus on the celebrity personality who is the teacher, the guy who wears the microphone, or the woman who wears the microphone. What you can really take away from here, if you're smart, is community of some sort. Probably someone in this room has what you need. And I guarantee you it isn't me. So don't waste your time on me. Uh, but that's all there for you uh, to sort out. So techniques we can discuss. The formation of community and association is your own business. And then as much time as you want to spend on the what does it all mean, Mr. Natural, uh, side of the question. Uh, and we'll dig into all of this at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Thank you very much. Get some sleep or go to the baths or do both. Or go to the rave. <laughs> okay, well, before I get into my spiel, uh, does anybody have anything they want to say this morning which can range from your have snorers in your room to some profound objection or illumination of what went on last night? Yeah. Just, just a semantic question as to why descent into novelty rather than ascent into novelty. What, I mean, there seems to be a pejorative implied. This, I've, this question comes up. Um, the, there are several reasons originally, and then I've invented new ones since. Uh, the time thing quantifies novelty, but it quantifies it, you could almost say it quantifies it negatively, because the maximum of novelty has a numerical value of zero. So how I pictured this was I actually picture the space-time continuum like a, a landscape, a topology. Well, then I think of time as a fluid medium of some sort. Well, naturally, a fluid medium finds its equilibrium at the lowest energy point in the system. So the river flows toward the sea. This question of energy flows and what is pejorative and what is not, I've learned, is a completely culture-based value. There are tribes in the Amazon for whom rivers begin 
where they meet another river, obviously. And they end where they peter out among some springs and swamps up in the mountain. Uh, to them, this is perfectly obvious that that's how rivers work. To us, it's inconceivable. The thing goes the other way. Um, if I had turned the wave on its upside down, then instead of having maximum novelty quantify at zero, it would have simply quantified at some arbitrarily large integer in the 700,000 range. So it, it lacked elegance. So for all of those reasons, uh, I chose to have novelty be a descent rather than an, an ascent. And then later, I in, incorporated things like uh, dynamics and, uh, and chaos theory and that sort of thing into the model. Well, then what you get is sort of the idea that the zero point in time is like a dwell point or an attractor. And so uh, all the processes in the epigenetic landscape are being channeled, is one way to think of it, or pulled, is another way to think of it, or pushed, is another way to think of it, toward this certain point in the system. If that seems complicated, all I'm saying is, if you release a marble up near the rim of a bowl, it's easy to predict where it's going to come to rest when it's still. It's going to come to rest at the bottom of the bowl. That's the place where the minimum energy of the system is uh, fulfilled. Yeah. Okay, anything else out of uh, last night? It's still possible to raise the issue of snoring. Don't feel we've, we're so far from the dock that you can't <laughs> jump back. Yes. I have a friend who's been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and when Richard was here this week, he told me that ayahuasca would be, is being found to be very good for Parkinson's. And if you know anything about that, I'd like you to talk about it. I don't know anything about it except that I know who to ask, which would be my brother Dennis. Uh, but I've heard that this is, this is true, that they're getting a remarkable uh, remission of, of the symptoms uh, with it. It's really part of a whole frontier, uh, you know, uh, that uh, Prozac has to do with. And I just a month ago went through a horrific series of migraines. And so now I know all about sumatriptan, which is a, a magic bullet for migraine, but a DMT-related drug that also, like Prozac and like ayahuasca, all of these things target these serotonergic systems, different 5-hydroxytryptamine receptors in the brain. And it seems like a whole new and much friendlier family of uh, drugs are going to emerge out of this. And some of them are going to have application to psychological situations. And some, and some are, are going to definitely impact stuff like migraine and Parkinson's. I don't know why it took them so long to look at the 5-HT family of receptors because it's been pretty obvious to psychedelic heads for 30 years that of the major neurotransmitter systems in the brain, that seemed to be the one whose affects lie closest to observable consciousness. You know. 
after I got out of here last night, I was reviewing my performance and I realized that of the many descents into novelty that were indicated, the one which uh, was left out, which is sort of the overarching architecture of the whole thing, is that life itself is a descent into novelty toward a complete singularity that defies all anticipation or is uh, very difficult to come to terms with. People find it quirky that I would propose the end of the world and they find it highly improbable and feel very good about being able to reject it as improbable. But have you noticed how abstract all that is in relationship to the inevitable fact of your own death? I mean, there is an end of the world built into your cosmology, the end of your world, which is, after all, uh, the only world you know. So uh, it may be that the planet will swing a hundred billion times around the planet uh, before the consummation of time, but it's, that doesn't mean that you have permission not to contemplate final end states because you've got an appointment with one out there somewhere 10 minutes or 50 years in the future. So that little sobering... Uh, parenthesis can be put around all of these other uh, descents into novelty. The historical descent, the analogy to the historical descent produced by the psychedelic experience. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about this morning is maybe it isn't clear in everyone's mind what this historical acceleration and descent into complexity, what that might conceivably have to do with one's personal relationship to psychedelics. Well, it's hard to see the connection, I think, if you have a, um, a psychological model of what the psychedelic experience is. And by that I mean one, one school of thought about psychedelics is that uh, basically takes up the vocabulary of Freudianism and Jungianism and says there is a part of our mind which we are ordinarily not in contact with, which is composed of uh, thwarted desires, uh, unexamined memories, so forth and so on. And when we take psychedelics, somehow all boundaries are dissolved and we confront this material. And if it's traumatic then the ordinary dynamics of psychotherapeutic uh, curing cut in, and so this becomes a kind of uh, catalyst for, for uh, uh, psychoanalysis of some form. So that's one model. And, uh, and then uh, another model is that this is uh, a parallel world of some sort that we encountered. That's closer to what I'm proposing, but what I've come to rest with in this is a, a kind of mathematical model that consciousness, like certain chemical systems, has two states of crystallization. There is the mundane mind, which basically has evolved in a carnivorous hunting monkey 
as a threat detection device. And it is extraordinarily focused on nearby three-dimensional space and time because it's from there that some threat, an enemy, a saber-toothed tiger, something. And so the mind has evolved as an aura of threat detection around the body. Uh, but that's, uh, it, that is a kind of utilitarian application of it. it. In the same way that water takes the shape of any vessel that it's poured into, mind, too, is a kind of fluid and takes the shape of any vessel it's poured into. So in the ordinary circumstance of consciousness in three-dimensional space, consciousness fills the three-dimensional space-time continuum and returns a description of it to the animal body. But if you will still the body and remove the threat by posting guards at the front of the cave and moving back to where the furs, the women and the children are, in other words, if you will raise your comfort level considerably and then take these neuro... uh, chaotic substances, in other words, things which produce a perturbation in ordinary brain states, then the perturbation becomes a kind of energy that dissolves this threat detection architecture of consciousness. And within all that, there is the phoenix of hyperspace, which is what's called shamanic consciousness. And shamanic consciousness is not bounded by three-dimensional space and time and can move through the many levels of the universe uh, at the speed of thought. And it is not a body-centered consciousness. Usually these states occur when, for all practical purposes, the body appears deeply asleep or dead. I mean, it's in trance. You're traveling. So mind is apparently a a tool for the um, exploration of the dimensions that are built into nature. And uh, what shamanism is, if you analyze it from this point of view, it becomes much more rationally apprehendable. Think about the classic um, characteristics of shamanism. Shamans um, are weather prophets. This is very important to be able to predict the weather. Shamans can predict the movement of game, and so they are directly linked into the nutrition acquisition survival equation of the human group that they represent. And shamans have incredible insight into if somebody's pilfering from somebody's food cache, the shaman can get right to the heart of this social problem and set it right. (coughs) And then finally, shamans cure with uh, quite impressive success rates in a world devoid of antibiotics, surgery, x-ray, and so forth and so on. They do very well. So all of this seems to verge on the edge of magic. They seem to have a different relationship to space, time, and energy than ordinary people. How do they do it? Well, if you 
imagine that the mind can unfold in a higher spatial dimension, then yesterday and tomorrow are no more uh, distant than today. And all locked boxes have an open door in them. And, uh, uh, and all, all the end state of all uh, processes in time can easily be discerned. So really what a shaman is, is someone with four-dimensional perception who carefully chooses their patients for recovery. And uh, doctors will tell you, part of being a good doctor is to know what patients to treat uh, be- because uh, you know, there is an empathy there and there has to be a certain kind of linkage. So I don't think, uh, in principle, there is a violation of physics involved. There is simply a violation uh, or a uh, broadening of the definition of, of what perception is. Well, then the question becomes how to reach these states. Yeah, Cheryl. Well, this is a track that I think of often, like the mind assuming the shape of the vessel that it's put in. Because I deal a lot with people who are in the process of dying, who have lost the person they love most in the world. So I deal with people that are really pushed up against the edge of the most traumatic experiences in their life. And what I find to be so rewarding and valuable about working with people in that state is that all the facades drop away, all the bullshit, all the defenses, and what's left is just this raw, core, pure essence of genuine being. And it makes me realize how unfortunately rare it is to encounter that. And you talked about getting safe from the tigers. I mean, we don't have tigers that we have to protect ourselves from, but dear God Almighty, we have so many other things that we're so involved in protecting ourselves from that we've got these layers and layers and layers and layers of defense that keep us from being in touch with, I think those shamanic ways of being are our natural human resource that we all have. And the great sadness and the heartbreak for me is that we're so out of touch with it that we're wasting the greatest asset in being alive. And instead, we fill our minds with this absolute, dear God, drivel. I mean, don't we? I mean, what, what are the things that we think about most of the time? It's drivel. And, I mean, we're very lucky here. It's very pretty, and everything's very nice, and we can have pleasant conversation. But to really get to the core issues of what we're doing here, and why we're here, and what we could be using this experience for, is such a contrast to me that I welcome this kind of conversation. Well, see, the problem is, I think, that culture is a flight from reality. All culture is a flight from reality. So to the degree that you are normal, whether you're Witoto or Manhattanite or Parisian, but to the degree that you are normal, that means how you are very successfully taking part in the flight, the cultural flight from reality. You are supporting the mass hallucination and paying dues into it. And it's difficult in an age like now where there's so much stress on ethnicity and community and roots and all that to preach this, to preach that culture is not your friend. It's a trap. It's It's a limit. But really, a radical human freedom is what you were born for. 
And culture is a kind of placenta, which if you develop normally by around age 20, you have no need of it. And in fact, you've recognized the toxic nature of it and are trying to put it behind you and, and, and get away from it. And that is a rationale for many people living in, in, in cities, in large, you know, in, in virtual environments of, of steel and glass with no with no contact to, to the natural world, and their justification for that is, oh, well, there's culture. Where else am I going to... Good point. These are the same people who, when you suggest to them that their children watch too much TV, they say, but if they didn't watch TV, how would they learn about nature? <laughs> These wonderful programs. <laughs> uh, it's really funny that you have that take on the on the urban experience because you know I've since August been recently thrown into the American urban experience of Manhattan and what's so interesting to me is how many people I meet that say well I'm in Manhattan because I don't have to participate in culture I'm in Manhattan because I can do my own thing and nobody cares nobody pays attention I'm not violating the, the community that I grew up with I'm not violating my parents I can get away with you can be lost in a sense it's a kind of jungle that's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, the word virtual was used here. You, obviously, you're all aware there's a lot of ballyhoo now about virtual reality, and the critics of it say it will further artificialize and remove us from our roots. There is nothing new happening here except that we're going from stucco and steel and masonry to photons on a tube. When they built Ur, they were building a virtual reality and when they all marched inside and closed the gates they were inside a mental construction of human beings that was entirely artificial and we've been there ever since and all this computer revolution is is a shift to more lightweight building materials uh, um, so the recovery of the natural state of human beings is, I think, somewhat chimerical. Uh, the only time you recover the natural state of human beings is in orgasm and in psychedelic uh, apotheosis. And then, you know, for fleeting moments, uh, you recover it. And then you're dropped back down through levels and levels of culture, programming, obligation, matrix stuff, matrix, matrix. Anyway, what I wanted to get to is then how to do this how to get uh, out of culture, how to get out of three-dimensional space, how to get in to this super space. Well, there are two main um, uh, methods on the table. And uh, one is through, no matter how you cut it, some manipulation of the body maybe breath control, maybe diet, maybe extreme postures, maybe some sexual technique, uh, could be mantra, etc., uh, etc. Et and strangely enough, often unaccompanied by substances, plants, or drugs, but almost always accompanied by enormous doses of fuzzy thought and ideology, usually known as religion. Uh, 
so that there is that path and the claim that you can achieve somehow the paradox of being outside without ever leaving culture by using the cultural instrument of religion to uh, to make your way to the heart of the mystery i reject this i just think it's uh, it's bunk it was something uh, it was it's an effort to close the loophole it's an effort to channel spiritual thirst in a direction that is still culturally affirming but spiritual thirst can't be culturally affirming because it's a rejection of culture culture generates <laughs> spiritual thirst okay so then the other method on the table uh are psychedelics uh arthur rimbaud the french symbolist poet uh uh his theory of poetry was that it could only be achieved by what he called a, a deliberate dislocation of the senses and uh, some of you may have seen a couple of years ago a wonderful cartoon in the new yorker a bunch of businessmen sitting around a highly polished conference room table with a chart going down 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 in the back obviously the profits of the company and the chairman of the board is saying to this little man who has obviously just said something he's saying uh, you're right higgins that a deliberate disordering of the senses worked for rambo but would it work for us <laughs> probably not for acme corporation but it will work for us and the way it's achieved is by uh uh dissolving the chemical stability that lies behind the mental and cultural stabilities in other words going to a very deep level going to the molecular architecture of uh, of the brain itself and then making changes and for reasons mysterious and certainly worthy of discussion we are accompanied on this planet by uh dozens and dozens of plants that uh do this and do very little else in other words pose no problem to the physical integrity of the body or the long-term integrity of the culturally constructed normal mind but which for uh minutes or hours uh dissolve the three-dimensional threat detector uh construct of the mind and replace it with something else and then we can talk about what is the something else uh william james said of the newborn infant he said we are born into a blooming buzzing confusion which is a pretty good description of the first 30 seconds of a dmt flash it's a blooming buzzing confusion well then is it simply that all reality is psychedelic but if you spend enough time in any reality it tends to mundaneize is that it and if you could be high on dmt for 4 years at the end of it you would navigate it the way a 4 year old child navigates this world uh perhaps probably so although possibly not so there are my you come in with that kind of chaotic 
Yeah, we do. And but when you burst into the DMT space, you don't arrive as the tabla rasa of the newborn infant. You arrive with your husserl and your Pythagoras and all the rest of it fully intact in your hip pocket, uh, uh, if you need to use it. Well, so uh, long before written culture, long before cities, so forth and so on, this potential for the the uh, dissolving and recrystallizing of the mind through the use of plants had been discovered. It may have been one of the very earliest discoveries of human beings. Uh, and uh, it, it, I believe, and argued in my book, uh, Food of the Gods, that these things actually synergize uh, high states of information processing and transfer that uh, spoken language itself is a kind of overflowing of the cup of thought into the verbal circuitry that is occasioned by pushing the human envelope uh, with the presence of psychedelic compounds. And uh, the way this works in a shamanistic society is uh, most Aboriginal societies have located in their environment plants that are effective in uh, causing this sort of state to occur. And these will be inevitably, with very few exceptions, indole-containing plants. Uh, all of the interesting psychedelics, with the exception of mescaline, which is an amphetamine, and alpha-salvinorine, which is, I believe, an isoquinoline. Uh, everything is an indole. LSD, DMT, psilocybin, ibogaine. And it's, a, it's quite a small family. They are all serotonin antagonists, and they are all structural competitors for uh, the bond site, the, the receptor site uh, in the nervous system where all of this stuff goes on. Uh, I suppose we should talk or at least mention the fact that the use of these things is illegal in most societies and, uh, and furiously suppressed in some societies. I don't find this very interesting. I just think it has to do with the suppression of most effective means for getting out of culture. Uh, sex itself would be illegal if they could find a way to make it so. It obviously uh, seems to threaten the social order as, as much as uh, psychedelics. Well, so then if you're interested in these things beyond the, the mere abstract acquisition of data, then there's a lot of detail work ahead of you. You have to learn a lot about plants, a lot about Aboriginal cultures, a lot about chemistry, and a lot about yourself. And then you bring all this together and search for a tool that works for you. And, you know, human beings are highly variable. I took a course years ago from Sasha, and uh, at one there were about 500 people in this class. It was a class in forensic chemistry, of all things. And at one point, he brought in, in a test tube, a little compound that was passed around and sniffed. And out of 500 people, two 
had a violent physical reaction to this stuff. And then he told us the range of sensitivity in human beings uh, to this compound is over three orders of magnitude. And yet, so the person sitting next to you could be 10,000 times more sensitive to this chemical than you are. Uh, so uh, you sort of have to learn the landscape of your own nervous system. Some people, there are powerful shamanic systems, for example, built on deturas, tropanes, uh, the, the things that occur in jimson weed and these arborescent uh, detours that you see used in landscaping with the beautiful pendulous fragrant flowers. Those contain powerful mind-altering substances. I can't take those things because they, I become delirious. It's a useless state to me. I become confused. And many people, that's their reaction. But maybe one in 50 has a different set of receptors for this and can hold presence and, uh, and work through it. So you need to study the classic shamanic hallucin uh, hallucinogen-using complexes in the world, and they are, um, without an effort to be exhaustive, uh, the psilocybin complex in Mexico, based on many species of mushrooms occurring there, especially in the Sierra Mazateca. The ayahuasca complex in the Amazon basin, which is a combinatory uh, thing made of two plants which synergize each other. The iboga complex in Western Africa, which runs on ibogaine. Uh, uh, which is derivative of Tabernanthe Boga, the peyote complex of the American Southwest, uh, and then arguably not a psychedelic, but since arguably we'll include it, the worldwide presence of the cannabis complex in different uh, manifestations. So, and then, of course, the entire issue of synthetic chemistry. Uh, it's often been thought that I am some kind of monotheist about plants and d denounce all synthetic chemistry. It isn't from some kind of absolute. It's simply that with synthetic chemistry, you don't have the kind of database you have with a plant. Take a plant, ayahuasca, probably been used five or 6,000 years. So we have our human data sample. We know that this doesn't cause blindness, miscarriage, birth defects, madness, so forth and so on. A drug fresh out of the laboratory that you've had a good response from 12 people with is by no means suddenly safe. I mean, tens of thousands of people have to take this drug for many years before you can absolutely certify. And the other thing to remember is no drug is safe. You can kill yourself with water if you drink enough of it. Uh, drugs are poisons. Uh, this is what they are. And the question is, you know, the judicious use of poisons elicits certain responses, but you definitely uh, want to have the, this understanding. Well, so then there's a vast literature about all this, an anthropological literature, a chemical 
literature uh, and to some degree uh, philosophical and analytical literature. Uh, reading all these descriptions, you eventually something attracts you. And then the question is how to do it. And the way to do it, I think, especially in the beginning, is uh, in silent darkness on an empty stomach. You don't want to see the culture psychedelically put through a psychedelic filter. You want to see the ding on siege of it, the thing in itself. So you just want to put a black and silent screen behind it. And people say, well, but won't it be boring? Having obviously meditated. No, <clears throat> it's not like that. Uh, people who are honest meditators will tell you that it's the most boring undertaking in the world, that somehow it's a, it's a metaphysic of boredom is what it is, you know. It's, it, 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 it's, uh, but the way you do psychedelics is you sit and you close your eyes, but notice that when most people sit and close their eyes, they fall inward. They have closed their eyes, so why should they continue to look outward? But I think it's very important in the state of anticipation of the psychedelic, meaning before it comes on and as it comes on, to sit with eyes closed but looking. Simply imagine that there is a surface, a black surface, a foot in front of your face, and just watch it. And somehow this expectation of seeing is a permission to structures in the brain to begin to present. And then once, of course, the lock is made, it's often difficult to turn it off. But getting the channel tuned in right at the beginning can be tricky. And all the techniques of unpsychedelic spiritual pursuit work in the presence of psychedelics. In my experience, it's the only time they work. <laughs> So in other words, pranayama, yantra, mantra, suddenly these things are become as advertised rather than, oh, um, you know, I've said it 10,000 times, I'm not sure I'm getting anywhere. Uh, so uh, I think it's very good to imbibe this uh, knowledge of these spiritual techniques and have your mantras folded and ready at your elbow when you plunge in there. Yeah. Um, a small digression. Um, what about shamanic cultures? This is an interesting question. Uh, and in, in anthropology, it's been a raging debate for 30 years or more. The definitive work on shamanism, uh, or the great classic work on shamanism, is called Shamanism, the Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy by Mircea Iliad. And Iliad was a Romanian who educated in France and became a, a brilliant academic, wrote one of the best books ever written on yoga, Yoga, Immortality and Freedom, wrote a book that changed my life forever called Cosmos and History. Um, many, many books, a great historian of religion. And, but when Iliad came to the phenomenon of, of intoxication in shamanism, he completely reverted 
to his European constipated male dominator French structuralist uh, roots, and he said nar- narcotic. This was the word he used, which noticed the pharmacological imprecision of that. That right there tells you this person doesn't quite at the front of the line. But he said, narcotic shamanism is decadent. Resort to drugs is decadent. Well, then Gordon Wasson, who was the discoverer of the mushroom complex, uh, took exactly the opposite position and said shamanism in the absence of psychoactive plants is on its way to turning into ordinary priestcraft and religion. And, and so, and in my experience, this is true. I mean, I agree with Wasson for the following reason. Uh, there is nothing intrinsically to be valued, I think, in suffering. There's, uh, I'm Buddhist enough to believe that there's enough suffering without inviting or creating it. Uh, so when you lay the psychedelic path next to the non-psychedelic but effective path, it's an ordeal. It's, that's how it's done. You starve yourself. You go into the wilderness. You pierce yourself. You may, in fact, take plants that are not psychedelic, but that induce severe cramping or diarrhea or something like that. You may be flagellated. You may be covered with red ants. You may be hung upside down. You may be beaten senseless. I mean, clearly, to my mind, what this evinces is a kind of desperation to attain these states. Almost no price is too great. And, you know, you start shedding blood in a tropical environment and you're up for grabs for severe septicemia and all sorts of things. So it's a very heavy thing. Meanwhile, these plants, you prepare the concoction, you take it. There may be a little gastric distress. There may be a little psychological distress. But no matter how bad it gets, six to 12 hours later, you're able to tell the story around the campfire. And you have smoothly, cleanly cut to the center of the mandala and returned. So I think if we are saying that entry into the shamanic world is uh, to be achieved by technique, and all scholars of shamanism agree with this, well then, as you lay these techniques side by side, clearly the use of hallucinogenic plants is more sophisticated in the sense that we judge a Maserati to be more sophisticated than a coach and four. It simply goes faster, works smoother, is more comfortable, and gets you there in better shape. Uh, Now, some cultures are in the unfortunate position, not many, but some, of having no really effective hallucinogen in their cultural area. And in almost every case, they have found a way. And people will go to great lengths. I'm sure, as you know, an example of both a poor, in my mind, a although there are people who would rise up in holy wrath over this, but the Amanita Muscaria cults of western Siberia among the Tunguska and Kamchatka people. I've taken Amanita Muscaria. I know many people who've taken it. It's an extremely trying experience at best. 
And uh, I don't think you could build a religion of ecstasy around it unless you were in a desperately sensory-deprived environment with no other uh, intoxicants available. To support my argument, the Amanita cults collapsed almost immediately upon contact with vodka, and the, so, in other words, in the minds of these Siberian shamans, these two vehicles laid side by side, their traditional mushroom and vodka, vodka was to be preferred. Uh, people have made much of Amanita muscaria, but even its most uh, enthusiastic proponents admit that they could never get off. So that, you know, that's a severe mark against one of these things. They must be effective. One of the things that has held up the development of this field, I briefly mentioned it yesterday, was the unwillingness of researchers to experience these things. You know, to go and live with an aboriginal people and see that every new and full moon they, they take something and the whole society goes through changes and then they talk of nothing else until the next time they take it and this is what they live for and you're studying their language and their value system and all this and you don't do it. It makes no sense at all. And yet until very recently, if you were to do it, your colleagues back at uh, Miss Atomic University would whip their knives out and denounce you as unprofessional, going back to the bush, not good method, uh, so forth and so on. So there's been an enormous phobia about contacting this by academics. And, uh, and so it's been left to countercultures to fringe people, to individual experimenters, to eccentrics of various types. And in the underground, then, an enormous database has been built up. Uh, nobody knows as much about psychedelics as people in the underground, because they're the people who've actually taken them, correlated the data, and... Uh, and kept track of it. So we're almost, we have an official science of pharmacology, and then we have this oddly developing subculture. And, uh, you know, it used to be, 10 years ago, I suppose, that a genuine shaman was uh, a, a person in a traditional culture uh, ministering to the needs of, uh, of a tribal group somewhere. Now, there are a large number, I don't know, thousands of people who I consider full-fledged shamans and full-fledged members of cyber-electric culture. I mean, shamanism is not necessarily a phenomenon of the upriver and off-road. Uh, so here are people, there are people who have all the tools of Western science and epistemology. They've been to Harvard, they've studied philosophy and science and all mathematics, and they are fully empowered with the tools of archaic shamanism. They've been to these places. And strangely enough, uh, in many cases, these are some of the most creative people in the culture. I mean, I don't think he would mind me mentioning him in this context. Somebody like Mark Pesci who is, you know, a full-on psychedelic techno-pagan 
and the genius who created VRML, which is going to let us all walk into cyberspace. High tech and, and shamanic cultures are almost uh, overlapping in this country. And I think it has to do with the fact that, and this is what I mentioned last night, talking about the toxicity of ideology, that we're, we're moving into a post-ideological world. We're moving into a world where the bankruptcy of ideology is obvious. All ideologies are faiths. Even science can be demonstrated to be a faith that rests on certain revealed truths which are never uh, questioned. Uh, to build a non-toxic future, we are going to simply have to solve many of our problems pragmatically. For instance, right now, we have many problems. AIDS, overpopulation, this and that. All of these problems could be solved, except that we have one rule when we approach a problem. The solution must make money. There are many problems where the solution, there is no solution that makes money. So if you refuse any solution but that type, you're, you're upriver. Well, anyway, that's a slight digression. Uh, yeah, sure, lead me back. However, I will say that there are a few, there are a few on my bookshelf, and that's a horrible way to do it, and I, I agree with you. I really agree with you, but there are a few on my bookshelf. Franklin Merrill Wolf would be one. Uh, Gopi Krishna would be another. Yogananda from people that I've met that, that spent time with him might might be a third. I feel better about the first two. There are people in history that really seem to be beatific. Well, you know, Aldous Huxley said a very interesting thing about psychedelics, and I think it addresses this. He, he said of psychedelics, he said, it is a gratuitous grace. Now, what does this mean? It means it is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation. It is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation, but it certainly helps. It's, uh, so taking psychedelics doesn't make you a superior person. Uh, I'm, this interests me very much because I've now been at this for 30 years, and your original question, are we better people? fascinates me because if we are not better people for doing this then we're just another cult we're like the mormons or shoko asahara or it's just we have this closed system of belief we do this thing we say it makes you better it's no different from ladihan or mantrayana or some other practice it's just our practice is fairly radical and we claim it makes us better people uh, well yeah and, and what i'm saying is rather than take the thing in itself and say, does this make us better or not? What What is the set of to-dos that does make us better? What is that set? How do we do that? What's the What's the manual look like? Well, my my argument in favor of that it, how that it does make us better, and here's how, is that um, love is is obviously 
the highest human ideal. I mean, that's like a cliche to say that, but love is the highest human ideal. Well, love <clears throat> uh, consists, it seems to me, largely of boundary dissolution, that we become, we merge with the thing loved. We soften our boundaries. And of course, male, uh, um, primate sexuality has to do with penetration and merge all sexuality except some fish. Usually there's some shared sharing of space and so forth. Well, these psychedelics in that sense then are inherently uh, uh, amorous or inherently sexy because that's what they do. They dissolve boundaries between you and other people and other things. And as a primate, when the boundary is dissolved, what you feel is love. Or if you're traumatized by bad upbringing and childhood abuse and who knows what, when the boundaries dissolve, what you feel is fear. But if you, have, if you are not damaged, the proper response is love. And I think through the psychedelics, if you have fear, and we all do, believe me, because it, it's terrifying to shed the old carapace. Uh, but beyond the fear lies the love, if you can persist through it. And, and so really the demand that... Uh, psychedelics make on us, and this may be another reason why perhaps we tend to be better people, that's all I would say, is psychedelics demand of us courage. Every single person who says they've done psychedelics several dozen times is a courageous person. You're standing in the presence of fearlessness because otherwise people turn away from it. And I think courage is probably a good value, probably makes you a good person to hike in the woods with or have an affair with or whatever. So it makes us courageous and it dissolves boundaries which let in love or fear. And the fear that they let in can be transformed in the psychedelic state through an inner alchemy into love. That's why... You know, the most dramatic personality transformations I've ever seen, including my own, have been psychedelically induced and just happen on the dime. You know, you go into it person A and 12 hours later you come out and you are not that. It doesn't always work like that. I mean, that's... But nothing else ever works like that. So... You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, it's always nice when somebody calls you courageous, but I'm not sure that the word fearlessness should also be used in that context that Terence just used it in. As I understand it, uh, courage is a willingness to confront things like pain, danger, or uncertainty. And in that context, I suppose that it is a safe assumption that the majority of psychonauts do have a fine degree of courage. But in my own case, uh, well, I can't say that fearlessness was also one of my traits. The truth is that on almost every deep psychedelic experience that I've had, it was preceded by a significant amount of fear for several days leading up to it. In fact, my opinion is that if you aren't scared shitless just before you begin a mushroom trip, well, then you probably aren't planning on taking a big enough dose. <laughs> As Jonathan Ott often said, 
Beware the dreaded underdose. Now, uh, I also have to point this out, because unless you were fortunate enough to attend one of Terrence's workshops in person back in the 80s and 90s, you may not have even thought about this. But at one point, when he was talking about community, he said, Probably someone in this room has what you need. (laughs) Now, back in the 80s and 90s, before the internet took hold, finding connections to psychedelic circles was extremely difficult particularly if you lived in a place like Florida, as I did. So back in July of 1998, at a workshop in upstate New York at Omega Institute, I was thrilled when I heard Terrence say the same thing. And before that weekend was over, I made several good connections, including the person who got me to go to the Burning Man for the first time. Back then, the main reason that people went to see Terrence McKenna may have been the bard himself, but making good connections into the worldwide psychedelic community was a very close second. Another thing that caught my attention was just near the end of this talk, when Terence was speaking about Iliad and shamanism, he said that Iliad, and I quote, wrote a book that changed my life forever called Cosmos and History, end quote. I think that may be the first time that I ever heard Terence mention that book. Uh, For sure, I don't remember him saying it changed his life forever. Now, Terrence doesn't say when he first read that book, but I can tell you when I read it, (laughs) because I still have my copy of that cosmos in history. It was in the spring of 1963, and I was an electrical engineering student at the University of Notre Dame. At the time, all engineering students there had to take 12 hours of non-technical courses. The one that I chose had to do with ancient religions. And while I no longer remember much about my physics, mathematics, and engineering courses, I still have clear memories of some of those ancient religion classes. And, in fact, Cosmos and History is the book that first set me on a path that led me away from all organized religions. So uh, I guess I too should count it as an important book in my life. I'm not sure when Terence first read this book, but I can say with certainty that when I read it, Terence was only 17 years old. So, uh, it seems fair to me to say that Terence got a lot more out of that book than I did. At least he understood it much earlier in his life than I did. But that's another story. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>